The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It is also problematic to have the testimony of a witness, Dave Grush, who was offering secondhand claims about the existence of alien technology with naval aviators who are offering a firsthand account of something that they saw and are not trying to attribute it to anything. Now, they may believe they had an encounter with an alien life form. They may believe that. They're not saying it. And I think that it's really problematic that these witnesses got put together in the same context before a committee of lawmakers who believe that the government is run by people who are in a conspiracy and run by a deep state. I'm Scott Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for July 31st, 2023. This past week, the House Oversight Subcommittee on National Security, the Border and Foreign Affairs held a spirited hearing on an unusual topic— Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAPs, the more correct term for what are commonly called UFOs, or Unidentified Flying Objects. The witnesses included two military veterans who claimed to have borne eyewitness to UAPs, and an Intelligence Committee whistleblower who claims to have heard secondhand from contacts about a range of government activity relating to extraterrestrials, including the recovery of alien remains and crashed aircraft. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the witness's testimony has triggered an array of strong reactions, from outright scorn and disbelief to an array of boosters eager to tie it into their own worldviews and conspiracy theories. To talk through the revelations at this hearing and the debate over UAPs more broadly, I sat down with veteran Washington Post national security reporter Shane Harris, who has closely followed the debate over UAPs for many years. We talked about how the witness's testimony fits into the broader universe of reports relating to UAPs, what parts reflect serious policy problems and which don't, and how to separate the wheat from the chaff in the broader UAP debate. It's the Lawfare Podcast for July 31st, Making Sense of the UFO Hearing with Shane Harris. So Shane, this past week, we had what has been a little bit of a recurring phenomena, an identified phenomena, I should say, (laughs) uh, to distinguish it from others we're going to be discussing uh, in today's episode, which is a congressional hearing around the phenomena of unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs, also sometimes called UFOs, or at least a substantial overlap between the two uses of those two terms, which is kind of an interesting topic that has had a lot of, gained a lot of credibility and a fair amount of traction in Congress, and even in kind of the executive branch in the Biden administration, and to some extent, the Trump administration as well for the last few years in terms of being seriously talked about, despite touching on some topics that a lot of people, I think, instinctually view as quite incredulous, such as aliens and visitations from the other worlds, things like that. This hearing was really interesting because it featured three witnesses who all claimed Well, first, I should note, are all military veterans or involved in the military, people holding security clearances and having served at high levels with high level roles and responsibility in the military and government in various ways, and also claim to have, at least in two cases, firsthand, one case, secondhand knowledge or experience with UAPs, and then in one case in particular, U.S. government's alleged handling of UAP technology and possibly even what he describes, I think, as biologics or, or bodies of recovered people, although all of that he acknowledges secondhand. Tell us a little bit about who the witnesses were at this hearing and what we learned from them to start with. And then I want to get to, into some of the context and meta around this hearing. But let's start with that. What were the the big slice of information we got from this hearing? Right. And I think it's a good way of thinking about this hearing 
is actually in terms of the witnesses as opposed to just the subject matter because what really distinguished this hearing from previous hearings on the Hill in recent years uh, or recent months even really about UAPs and UFOs is that those hearings didn't feature people coming forward to say that they had seen an unidentified object, that they'd seen it up close, or that they had information they believed spoke to government research on the subject. So I would put the witnesses in two categories. In one, I would put um, there were two two men named Ryan Graves and David Fravor, both of whom said that they witnessed UAPs when they were serving as naval pilots, uh, both in Virginia in Graves's case and in California in Fravor's case. And what they did was they described their encounters with you know the, the, these objects, and these are somewhat familiar. By now, we've had actually a number of instances of, of naval pilots, naval aviators coming forward to say that they saw objects moving at incredible speeds, going from apparently zero to, you know, mock speeds in the blink of an eye, doing things that, you know, that kind of, as is often said, defy our understanding of physics. And these are usually very credible sounding accounts because they come from people who are trained to fly multi-million dollar airplanes. And, you know, we generally trust that what pilots are seeing in the sky, that they are faithfully and accurately reporting what they see. There has long been a question about whether or not these were actually optical illusions or whether the pilots were seeing what they thought was some exotic technology, but actually maybe was just a balloon. And based on where they were in the sky, it looked like it was moving faster. Kind of putting all that aside, you know, what we heard from in these two instances was, you know, statements from people who by all accounts are quite credible saying they saw something extraordinary. The second witness, or the third witness, and I put in a second category, is this man named David Grush. And, and Grush was worked on the UAP task force, which was this sort of multi-agency, you could think of it kind of like an interdisciplinary task force that was set up a while back to look at these reports of unidentified aerial phenomena or anomalous phenomena as we call them now. And Grush, who is a career intelligence officer who had worked at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, had a distinguished career, uh, had the highest levels of security clearances, basically began you know, what he would describe, I think, as kind of his own investigation after talking to people who worked in the UAP space about what exactly the government was not telling the public about what it knew on this subject. And where his kind of own investigation led him was his belief, which we should very much stress is not based on firsthand evidence, that the government has for decades, by his account, had a classified program that is retrieving crashed alien technology, spaceships, uh, and is studying those and reverse engineering those and has been hiding that fact from the public. We can get into Grush's claims. I think we probably should. But safe to say for now, um, that's kind of where the hearing broke out. The two eyewitnesses and then the one individual who claimed uh, to have knowledge that the government actually has looked at these craft up close, has studied them, uh, and according to Grush's account, has actually determined that they are non-human in, in, in origin. So I want to start with these eyewitness accounts actually first, because we have gotten seen so much of the media coverage of this hearing, what's come out of it, focus on Grush's secondhand claims. And what really was, if you listen to the actual hearing, some speculation by him where, where he was asked to openly speculate, you know, what could be explanation behind some of these things about interdimensional travel as opposed to space travel and things like that, that sound a little more outlandish, but actually weren't really the meat of this hearing. So let's focus on the eyewitness cases because they actually in a, some ways a little more interesting if you were if you're to split this issue up from kind of a ground level issues to a kind of galaxy brain issues um, which I think is a useful way to, to dividing the issues raised in this in this space so of the two witnesses one of them you mentioned David Fravor a former Navy pilot talked about the TikTok incident or TikTok incident excuse me discussing a phenomenon where when he was a pilot he encountered this TikTok shaped object um, that was basically was just a sphere. I think he also described it as a propane tank with like two, two. he said there were two little things kind of coming off the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. What do we know about 
this incident? What did he share with us that was the kind of key details about his experience, both with this incident and then how it interfaced with his professional obligations as a service member in the military? I think the the flying tic tac, as it's become known, is is one of the more notable and uh, and really I, I should say just fascinating encounters because it, it, it's not just this one individual, but there were three others that were flying at the time. So there's essentially, I think by my count, four and by his count too, four eyewitnesses uh, to this. So just to to, to kind of lay the scene, and he testified to this and put this in his written testimony too, which people can go read on the House Government Oversight's website. Um, but, but they are out there, you know, flying, and they're at about twenty thousand feet, uh, and there is a radar blip that they are kind of going out to investigate. And they, as they're going out to take a look at this, they notice what they describe as white water off to the right side of the aircraft. And this was notable because the weather that day was very clear, very clear skies, light winds, calm seas. And so they didn't expect to see white caps on the waves. Um, so this white water was standing out, as they describe it, against um, the other, you know, a blue, calm ocean. And these four aviators, including the witness, look down and see what, they des- what he describes as this small white tic-tac-shaped object with a kind of longitudinal axis moving abruptly over the water. And there have been other people who were on this patrol who've described this object as kind of darting, you know, back and forth and moving in this kind of almost erratic looking way, not flying smoothly like a plane, but just sort of jumping, hopping from place to place. He said there were no rotors that he could see, no rotor wash that he could see. So, you know, the signs you would expect to see from an aircraft with an engine, And he didn't see any visible flight control surfaces like wings, you know, things that we would expect to see on an airplane. It looks like a round or a cylindrical object. And as he starts to observe the object and get closer to it, it seems to start moving in relation, you know, to to the aircraft. Um, And it's this really vivid account. And, you know, I think made, you know, frankly, more credible by the fact that so many people saw it. And it's notable that this is one of the eyewitness accounts that has not been resolved by analysts who have looked at it after the fact. There have been some really remarkable instances of encounters that were captured on infrared cameras. And we've seen those, you know, these cameras from inside fighter jets taking pictures of these fast moving objects. Some of those have been resolved. And now experts say, no, actually, it looks like a really fast moving object. It's just a piece of debris and it's deceptively moving in front of you. It's not actually going as fast as you think Um, it's going. And so, you know, as the witness describes this, he gets back to his carrier. They're aboard the Nimitz, and they mentioned that they had witnessed this, um, and there was a crew getting ready to to go launch. And then this crew goes and takes a 90-second video of it, which is seen later. And I think it's fair to say that at the time that these pilots encounter this, the culture in the military is where it's been for decades, which is, you know, it does not incentivize reporting seeing strange objects in the sky. I mean, the culture among pilots is, you know, what they'll tell you now is for decades, commercial pilots, military pilots have seen strange stuff in the sky, and they just don't talk about it because they're afraid that their commanding officers or their employers will think they're crazy or they're seeing things. And, you know, we don't want people flying multi-million dollar aircraft or passenger jets who are having, uh, you know, hallucinations. And there's a real stigma about little green men and their snickering and in all the things that are attached to a conversation about UFOs kind of are, are, are magnified in the military. And so this is part of the conversation as well about reporting this stuff and what the military has tried to do in the aftermath of these kinds of incidences is is not only encourage, but even kind of in a way require military pilots to say, look, if you see something, we need you to document it because it could be an adversary aircraft. We're not saying you're seeing aliens, but we need you to tell us if you're seeing unidentified objects out there on patrol, particularly if they are ex- behaving in ways that we don't understand. And Fravor, it's worth noting, he's an interesting figure whose story became public and that he started speaking publicly about it in 2017. I think he actually gave the first interview to the Post, uh, if I recall correctly. I think it was to the Times, actually. Yeah, Was it to the Times? Okay, that yeah, may Helen be right. Mm-hmm. But it was because that was part of it. His story had been part of a declassification effort about a 
existing governmental program to kind of analyze the phenomena that had wrapped by this point, but maybe had efforts had continued. But the incident itself actually occurred in 2004. So he yeah. shared it internally, but didn't come public for 12, 13 years until it was fully declassified. And he talks a little bit about the professional incentives for doing that, that you that you flagged, that this is kind of a something that he was worried about the career progression and colleagues of his were worried about career progression if they became too public or too vocal about these sorts of incidents. Let's talk about the other eyewitness too, because uh, I thought his story was interesting. This, of course, is Ryan Graves, another former uh, military officer, now retired. Heads up, it's worth noting, an organization that is called the Americans for Safe Aerospace, but but is kind of focused on UAPs and providing an avenue for people to safely report UAP experiences. So he's he's involved in this space maybe more than Mr. Fravor is uh, professionally, but describes an incident where he and colleagues of his were encountering very different sounding phenomena, which he describes as a black or gray cube inside a transparent sphere, if I understand correctly, kind of intersecting at the corners of the cube with the sphere that interfered with or was seen as such a threat or confusion to flight missions over a period of time that I believe he said during the testimony lasted something like eight years, um, that it was included in routine briefing and and might even continue into the present day in a particular area where this was happening. Tell us a little bit about more about his experience and how we're refl- what we know about this story and this set of incidents. And in particular, he talked about I think bringing from his experience with his organization, he helped found how this intersects with civilian aircraft as opposed to military aircraft and how that came in at this hearing. Yeah, um, it's <clears throat> it's a pretty remarkable account that he gives. I mean, he he says that they are this is during an air combat training mission in an area where there's this kind of exclusive block of airspace 10 miles east of Virginia Beach so that all traffic going into the area has to go through this single, as you put a GPS point at a set altitude. So you can think of this as kind of a controlled airspace where there's a lot of military activity, but also importantly, sensors kind of trained on the area. And as he says it, just at the moment that two jets crossed into this threshold area, one of the pilots saw this dark gray cube, as he described, inside of a clear sphere. And it was motionless against the wind and fixed directly, as he put it, at the entry point. So, I mean, when he says motionless against the wind, it's sort of like you can imagine it's hovering and it, or kind of stationary. And this is also important, too, because one of the themes that cuts across a lot of these UAP sightings by military pilots is objects that are not just behaving in strange ways, they're behaving in ways that don't look like aircraft as we understand them. So it immediately catches the attention. And, you know, the skeptical part of this would say, well, are you sure you're not just seeing a balloon or a piece of debris? But, you know, he's describing it as a cube inside of a sphere. So, you know, if we take it on good faith that they're not exaggerating or embellishing, you know, we would imagine that pilots probably would be able to tell the difference between a balloon and, you know, a cube inside of a sphere. So that, I think, is something, you know, to take seriously in terms of their witness account. And as he says that the jets then this question were forced to take evasive maneuvers and they terminated this mission immediately and they returned to their base. So that's also interesting insofar as they perceived that this object was, you know, not necessarily benign. I mean, it didn't attack them, but they, you know, they basically broke off and came back and they submitted a safety report, um, which is something, you know, that is an official documentation that that goes into the record. Uh, but there was no official acknowledgement, as he testified, Graves testified, of the incident, and there was no uh, further way to report the sightings. So, you know, he talked in his testimony about the fact that, you know, commercial aircraft pilots are also people who see similar encounters like the one that he had. I mean, we hear a lot lately about military pilots um, seeing these things in, in large part because the Pentagon some years ago funded an office to look into UFOs. And notably, that office and its efforts became public in a story that the New York Times published a number of years ago, which drew a lot of attention 
to these incidents, including things like the famous Tic Tac incident uh, and, and others and, and testimony from people like Graves and like Fravor. But what Graves is saying is, look, you know, there are, you know, potentially hundreds of commercial air crew out there who are coming to him and his organization and saying, I've seen things like this, too. I've seen things that I can't explain. And, and, and that is true. I mean, if you if you kind of go back and you look through the research of reported sightings, one of the things that you'll find is there are incidents in which commercial airline pilots have come forward and given statements to journalists or to government bodies. And they'll say, like, this is kind of a common thing uh, in, in my community and my professional cohort, we all see this stuff and nobody really talks about it. You know, it just is a throwback. If you've ever seen the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, the Spielberg movie with Richard Dreyfuss, um, which is about aliens visiting the earth, there's actually a scene in which commercial airline pilots um, see something and they basically, air traffic control says, do you want to report this? And they say, hell no, I'm not reporting this. So it's kind of been in the UFO culture for decades that you know, commercial airline pilots see stuff routinely and just never talk about it. And I think what's interesting about that, again, you know, to kind of separate this from, you know, some of the, you know, accounts over the decades of people who've seen flying saucers in their backyard or whatever, or lights in the sky, you know, these are commercial pilots who are trained to recognize aircraft and are trained to stay away from them, you know, if they're getting too close. And they're describing things that just don't look like aircraft. And so I think that's one of the reasons why lawmakers in particular have been very interested in their witness accounts is because these are trained professionals and what they're observing is something extraordinary. And for that reason, I think that their testimony has been given more weight. And it's, I think, another reason why the military wants to to document this and to study it. And in some of these cases, you know, we know now some of these sightings have actually been resolved and have pointed towards potential adversary technology as being the thing that military personnel were seeing and were reporting. And just you you've hinted this already, but I think it's worth making clear, these two incidents are not the allegations they're bringing forward are unique to some extent because of the witness and the credibility and the detail and I think in the case of the Tic Tac incident uh, some like visual and other confirmation that's that's available, but they're not isolated. It's reflective right. of a broader universe of sightings and experiences Definitely. people have. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, these are not aberrations. I mean, there there are like many many reports like this that have been examined, and and you know, like I said, according to commercial pilots, they'll tell you there are hundreds of them, if not more. So now let's go to Mr. Grush's claims, which are foundationally sort of different. Give us a little bit about where he comes from what he's telling us and the what he acknowledges openly is is the source of his information which feeds into kind of the credibility and how we should view it uh, i think he would be he he would concede that up front yeah I, I think he would too and i and i really do think it's important to separate what dave grush is saying from these eyewitness accounts of naval aviators who are simply saying this is what i saw Okay, so Dave is a career, Dave Grush is a career intelligence officer. He worked, uh, among other places, for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which is a highly technical agency. They use satellites to do imagery and make maps. And he was assigned to the UAP task force. So basically, his job was to work on this task force as an analyst uh, and kind of as a, if you like, um, a representative from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the NGA. He ultimately filed a whistleblower complaint. And among the things that he alleges, including that he was retaliated against at work, is that he discovered that there is a long-standing government effort. A, a you can think of it like a program, but it's actually, I think, as Grush describes it, more like a series of activities. Um, but like, let's just call it a program for sake of you know ease here. That there's a government program aimed at what is called crash retrieval. So the government or the military discovers that something has crashed to earth. A team is sent out to recover the debris and to bring it back and to try and understand what it is. Now, I should say up front, that is a real thing. The government does recover crashed objects and tries to reverse engineer them. 
most of the time, those are found to be foreign technology. It could be a balloon. It could be a plane. It could be a part of a satellite, right? It has an actual human origin. And the government does this. It's not a secret. I mean, it's classified work, but the fact that we try to recover things and find out right. if it's a Chinese drone is true. And we all saw that on display in the balloon incident earlier this year to some extent. Tracking 100%. down all those other suspected phenomena that we were trying to, which one was a Boy Scout balloon and things like that. Absolutely. And remnants of the balloon that was shot down off South Carolina were sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where there is a long-standing crash retrieval and reverse engineering technology program. That's not a secret. What Grush is saying is that among the stuff that has been recovered is technology of unknown origin, or sometimes people will say technology of exotic origin. And what he is alleging is that this has been positively attributed as extraterrestrial in nature. In other words, people have looked at this stuff and said, this isn't human. We didn't make it. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just say in, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm familiar with Dave Grush's testimony on this because I've interviewed him at length before. And, you know, what he says is that there is this stuff that behaves strangely. You know, it responds in weird ways. It has, it has um, compos atomic composition that doesn't look like anything that is engineered on the earth. And which, of course, sounds, you know, in incredibly compelling and captivating. And what he says is that this program has been actively shielded, not just from the public, but actually from members of Congress. Uh, and, and in other words, what's happening here is that the executive branch is, I think he would argue, even illegally shielding an activity from Congress that doesn't realize it's happening and should have oversight and, and visibility into it. Now, when you ask Dave Grush if he has firsthand evidence of this, did you see the debris yourself? Have you handled it? Uh, the answer is no. And he'll say that up front. And, you know, kind of what's happening here is that I think Grush is to some extent inferring from conversations that he's had with other people about things that they say they've seen or is... Um, potentially talking to people who themselves have claimed that they have direct knowledge of this program. But all of this is, is secondhand. And I, the reason I think that that is important is because Dave Grush is not unique among people in the United States government who claim that there is some kind of alien technology crash retrieval program. In my experience, none of those people have firsthand evidence of it. It is always they've talked to somebody who knows something or I know a guy who met with a guy. And this is not just, you know, people like in recent years. I mean, this for, for many years, there have been people who've claimed to have knowledge of such programs. It's always in a secondhand capacity. And I think that this is something that really bears emphasizing, not because, and I want to be clear about this, not to say that I think that Dave Grush is fabricating or these people are willfully misleading, you know, the Congress. And Grush is unique, I think, in that he's testified to this under oath. I think they really believe this, but they don't have the kind of evidence that we see in the things like the flying Tic Tac video, which is not to say that the flying Tic Tac is an alien spaceship, but there's four eyewitnesses to an object and there's sensor data of the object. In Grush's case, it is basically, it's, it's hearsay. Um, it's informed hearsay, but, you know, he hasn't presented any documents. He hasn't revealed any code names that I'm aware of. And I've talked to people who are familiar with testimony that he gave behind closed doors. And I don't think it has really given Congress enough to sort of crack the case, if you will. I don't think he gave them enough to, like, you know, basically go to the Pentagon and say, now we know what this secret program is open the books on it, we demand to see it. Maybe this hearing will shake something loose on that front. But I think that, you know, his statements, while remarkable and, and sounding quite extraordinary, they, they, they just seem not to have the kind of evidence backing them up that I think a, a, an investigation would require if you were going to actually prove that the government did indeed have evidence of alien life. And just to put Grush specifically in context, un unlike the other two witnesses who have been kind of known quantities for the past few years to some extent for people who follow this stuff, Grush has kind of came on the scene relatively recently, and his story came forward in part 
because he was revealed to have filed a whistleblower report through the intelligence community. Uh, and so if I'm understanding this correctly, he claims that he's given much more detailed information, although I think just about everything he says is still secondhand, but much more detailed information as he understands it to the intelligence committees in a classified context. And repeatedly during this hearing, he said, I can't talk about that. It's classified. I have to go in a classified environment. Is that Does that sound accurate to you as to understanding where where he fits into the picture? Yeah, that's that's what he says. He's been kind of on the scene, just not public, for a number of years, and you know, and, and people who, you know, people who spend maybe way too much time <laughs> looking into this stuff <laughs> have been aware of, you know, either who he is, or, or certainly, if not having spoken to him directly, are aware of the kinds of claims that he is making. He did indeed file an intelligence whistleblower claim you know I, I just did not to get too in the weeds but it's lawfare so i can do it real quick um there Please. there was a finding by the icig that the matter he raised was one of urgent concern that sometimes gets reported in the press as saying the icig somehow found <clears throat> that he had urgent information about aliens or a hidden program about alien spacecraft that's not really accurate uh, it just means that he met the statutory uh, uh, kind of like check the boxes of what qualifies as a matter of urgent concern to be raised to Congress. So it's important to note in this, the intelligence community inspector general has not like vetted or given a stamp of approval on Dave Grush's claims. They're simply saying that the whistleblower complaint that he filed met the requirements of a matter of urgent concern. You know, and that goes to the fact that what he's alleging here is that basically there's, you know, some kind of malfeasance on the part of the intelligence community for running a program that Congress doesn't know exists, essentially is what he's saying. He did say many times in his public testimony that he has given lengthy testimony to the intelligence committees. That is true. I will say, based on my own discussions with people in Congress, they found Dave Grush's testimony compelling. The problem with it is, is that they did not feel <clears throat> that he could corroborate the claims that he was making. I think that they felt that he earnestly believes this. And the issue here is not that they think Dave Grush is lying. The issue, to kind of just put it plainly, is like he didn't bring the goods. He didn't bring the receipts. Um, and I think that from their perspective, his testimony was not detailed enough to give them in the committees, the staff, enough of a roadmap to actually go dig these things up. And uh, and I, I can't explain why that is, but that was a reaction I heard from multiple people. Um, and it's important to note that Dave Grush was not testifying publicly before the Senate Intelligence Committee. He was testifying before a, a, a different committee with a different uh, flavor of committee members. Let's put it that way. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. 
Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Oh, that goes right to uh, the meta context for this committee, which I definitely want to get into now that we've we've given, I think, a lot of detailed attention to the facts here. One last thing to flag, though, on Gresh's testimony is that, and, and tell, I'm curious as how representative this is of a new set of information or something that's been alleged by different people out there is that a, a big part of his whistleblower claim as he describes it and the hook i think to some extent for this committee's claim over this issue is this misappropriation element that you hinted at i mean he hinted at essentially that funds were being used in ways not appropriated not uh, noticed or acknowledged to congress that would raise a concern in a variety of contexts, uh, although it's also not entirely unprecedented when you're dealing with classified programs and there's there's ways those appropriations are kind of uh, done at a very broad level deliberately to allow for certain specific types of programs. Um, he also noted that there's strange contracting relationship with private companies. At one point, he alleged, uh, again, through secondhand knowledge that a private company had some of this technology, was then kind of reverse engineering it and then selling that back to the US government and thought this was a kind of you know uh, malicious economic cycle that was problematic and shouldn't be allowed. Are, are these sorts of claims he brought forward, which on the one hand, sound in conspiracy in a problematic way, on the other hand, also are kind of phenomena that look like real things that do happen and we know happen in other contexts and it's entirely appropriate for Congress to scrutinize uh, and would be expected. You know, how novel are these claims or is he is or is what he's saying something that's been out there for a while with people who believe in these issues have been tracking these issues? That is a great question. Um so 
Dave Grush's claims are actually not novel. What's what's novel about them is that he's making them under oath before a congressional committee. Um, but I've spoken to probably four or five individuals who claim many of the same things that Grush claims. They claim to have knowledge. It's it's always secondhand of these both the crash retrieval program and the role that contractors play in that. Um, so sort of in the in the stories that people tell about this whole program or series of programs, and I've talked to people who've come at it from being on the UAP task force and people who had claimed to have knowledge of it from back in the 90s when they were in the military, they all say that defense contractors play a really significant role in this. And they claim that there are defense contractors that actually are in possession of some of these technologies. There are people who claim that there are defense contractors who are in possession of entire spacecraft. And again, it's because they heard it from someone else who knows about it. And the reason that this is important, and, and I think, Scott, you put it really well here, is that we have a frame of reference. We, you know, the American public and people who pay attention to, to government and legislation, appropriations and government programs, we have a frame of reference for understanding how, you know, Congress can appropriate money for one thing and the executive branch maybe uses it for something different and how contractors, companies working for the government can add a whole other layer of bureaucracy and sometimes even secrecy and territoriality even around some of these programs. So when when Dave Grush talks about contractors having this technology and then in some cases even selling knowledge of it back to the government, that doesn't sound actually so far-fetched. I mean, if you just put aside the question of whether it's extraterrestrial or not, you know, that kind of relationship between government and contractors and, you know, fights over intellectual property and, you know, uh, and the, the important research that, that, that contractors might do for the government, particularly in the aerospace and aviation sector, by the way, where much of the, you know, the planes that we that the, the, that are spotting these UAPs, uh, you know, were not built at the Pentagon. They were built by places like Boeing. Right. And they were built with technology from other big, huge contractors. So we understand, I think, the nexus and the web of those entities. And so what Dave is basically saying is in the context of going out and recovering crashed vehicles and trying to build and reverse engineer and understand to build better planes and spacecraft of our own, this technology is getting, you know, captured in that whole process. And it's getting siloed and sequestered away at a very deep level. And Congress is not aware of that. Now, to just take a step back from that, you know, because the listener might be saying like, wow, that sounds like a pretty elaborate system uh, and would have to be a pretty big conspiracy, wouldn't it? I mean, what skeptics will say, and and I will say my skeptical response to this is what people like Dave are describing is an effort that has played out by their own account for decades involving hundreds, if not thousands of individuals with security clearances multiple government agencies, multiple government contractors, multiple physical locations. And we haven't seen a person with direct firsthand knowledge of this come forward. And so I say all that to note that when you're talking about crash retrieval, the flavor and the quality of the narrative, it is always secondhand. That is the thing that characterizes this entire discussion. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, Dave Grush is now, you know, to his credit, coming out and publicly saying what a lot of people talk about privately, but he is kind of a perfect example of the of the typical witness statement when it comes to crash retrieval. It's always somebody who knows a guy who knows a guy. It's never someone who has physically held the object, sat inside the spacecraft, uh, taken a picture of what they saw, can give you the name of the company and tell you the location of, and the hangar where it's sitting. That is, for the most part, really absent. And, and, and there will be people who hear this and say, no, 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 there's other evidence to the contrary, and they'll point to that, and we don't have to get into what all that evidence is. But Suffice to say, there just has not been anything conclusive and, and dispositive on this subject. Um, unique, though, it is that Dave Grush is kind of bringing it to public attention and putting it in the spotlight, um, whereas for the most part, this stuff always just is a conversation that happens in the corners of, you know, ufology and kind of, you know, in, in background discussions with journalists. 
So let's now take one step back from this hearing to get a little bit of the meta context, because I think it's important to have that to understand how people are responding to some extent to this hearing and some of the events that went on there, mostly in the kind of relatively mild by the standards of the House of Representatives grandstanding that that did occur at a few moments, um, which is, as you noted, this committee is not necessarily the one that would initially have jurisdiction, at least over Gresh's whistleblower claim. There's kind of a separate proceeding here. This is a committee that has a very different flavor. And some of the more and note, including that at least, you know, two, if not three, because I can't remember if, if Representative Gates is on the subcommittee or not, um, but he was referenced several times during proceedings. A few of these people are both people who have been involved in UFO issues in the recent past. Um, Representative Gates, Representative Luna, um, Representative Brichette from Tennessee, Luna and Gates are from Florida, were involved in a event that got some coverage a few months ago about uh, a UAP incident at England Air Base and trying to essentially walk into the airbase to demand answers and having a confrontation that that they discussed during the hearing there. They've been engaged in these issues. They're also notable because certainly Gates and Luna, at least, are people who are also tied to other conspiracies, I think it's fair to say, that are echoing in our political sphere. They're related to COVID disinformation. They are tied to things that are at least QAnon adjacent in a number of cases. They're very strong supporters of former President Trump, whose supporters are tied to a lot of these conspiracy concerns, disinformation concerns. And it's worth noting, they very clearly see a synergy between those beliefs in here. Um, Even at this hearing, they did pull in at a number of points the Chinese balloon incident from earlier this year as a sign of the failing, something they were joined in by Virginia Fox and some other more conventional you know, Republicans who were were there at the hearing. They, uh, and particularly Mr. Rashad, towards the end of the hearing, essentially used the opportunity to kind of demean Washington, D.C. and federal government employees generally, saying most people in government aren't like you, the three witnesses. They're not honest like you, Um, which ties into the kind of deep state conspiracy that has become such a prevalent narrative in a particular part of our polity that these people represent, represent. It's worth noting they weren't the only people at this hearing. They had Democrats who were very public engaged and supportive of the enterprise and other democratically chaired committees, including um, the House Intelligence Committee, I think during the last Congress, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, actually have had hearings on this as well. But this had a certain character. What should we be making of these political dynamics? How do they feed into this issue set and how Congress and the broader government is approaching it? You know, speaking as somebody who is for several years now covered UAPs and specifically covered this new government policy of paying more attention to UAPs and trying to bring objective empirical evidence to bear and and research on the subject, I do not think that this hearing advanced this cause. I think there is a real risk that this hearing will set back uh, the, the, the cause, if you want to call it that, of objective, serious discussion about UAPs, which to be clear, again, in most instances and in hundreds of incidences that the government has examined have been resolved. They've been found to be debris. They've been found to be balloons. They've been found to be foreign adversary technology. Um, they've been found to be tricks of the light or optical illusions. What's so important to remember about this whole new focus in recent years around this subject is that what was really motivating it for, for many lawmakers and many government officials, I won't say all, but for many of them, was a desire to understand whether these objects actually had you know, an explanation and were a threat to national security. And yes, of course, in the background and sometimes not even in the background, right in the forefront of that discussion is always, well, could they also be extraterrestrial in nature? I mean, it's an amazing question to contemplate. But the drive behind this has always been, we need to figure out what these things are that are flying around to make sure that they're not Chinese drones, for instance, as they have been found to be in some cases, or that they're not advanced Russian hypersonic weapons, etc. This hearing kind of went in a very different direction, and in large part because Dave Grush was testifying. And you had many members coming forward and embracing him as somebody who is basically presenting evidence that the government is hiding the existence of aliens from the American public. And that is essentially what the thrust of this hearing is about. And the members who you pointed out, you know, these are people who believe 
you know, that the election was stolen. These are people who have peddled disinformation about COVID. These are people who believe or at least want constituents, their constituents to think they believe that the government is controlled by deep state officials who were hiding all manner of sins and controversies and evidence from the American public, one of which, of course, is aliens exist. And, and it is, there was just a lack of seriousness and, and a kind of, of objectivity, I'm afraid, in this hearing, which, you know, to say nothing of the motivations for the people who are, who are holding the hearing. I mean, some of them by their own account, I mean, have been fascinated by this. These members have been fascinated by the question of UFOs and alien life potentially, as we all have, I suspect, for, for, for much of their life. But to then leap to the testimony of one individual is evidence that there is this vast network of alien technology that's been hidden from the American public. It just is so out of step with the much more careful, deliberate, again, objective kind of methodical approach that the military and the intelligence community and intelligence committees in Congress have been taking to the question of UAP phenomena. So, you know, it's the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee would not have held this hearing. It would have been seen as, frankly, unserious. It would have been seen as undisciplined, unruly. And, you know, I think that it is also problematic to have... The testimony of a witness, Dave Grush, who was offering secondhand claims about the existence of alien technology with naval aviators who are offering a firsthand account of something that they saw and are not trying to attribute it to anything. Now, they may believe they had an encounter with an alien life form. They may believe that. They're not saying it. And I think that it's really problematic that these witnesses got put together in the same context before a committee of lawmakers who believe that the government is run by people who are in a conspiracy and run by a deep state. So let me try and break down the kind of issues that the committee raised and see if you if this sounds right to you as a right way to think about them and how credible you found to find each of them. Um, Because it strikes me there's kind of three buckets, each of which is getting very different treatment, kind of in the broader government, the broader Congress, as well as in this committee. The broadest one where there seems to be emerging consensus, including in the Biden administration, where we've seen most recently, I think the National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby, come out and say UAPs are actual legitimate concern, is a focus on acknowledging UAPs as a phenomena, something that happens, and something that we need to have channels for reporting and understanding and documenting, and perhaps with a greater degree of transparency to facilitate information sharing and make more information available, at least to people researching this, if not to the broader public, to destigmatize them, to make sure that insofar as they do present a genuine threat, we are acknowledging that, frankly, and taking steps to identify it, address it, and develop appropriate countermeasures to share information about it. Does that sound right to you? Am I right that we're actually seeing a fair amount of receptivity to that kind of across the political spectrum in different parts of government? Absolutely. There is a consensus around trying to understand UAP to understand if they pose a national security threat. For most people, that means trying to find out if these objects are designed, built, and deployed by a foreign government. And so, yeah, there's definitely consensus around that. And and you, as you, you mentioned, the destigmatizing part of it, that is also a matter of consensus, I think, at this point. And is really, you know, military and Pentagon policy to say to military personnel and particularly pilots, don't feel ashamed, don't feel that you're going to be stigmatized or set back in your career if you see something. And I think that when the government does attribute some of these UAPs to actual foreign technology, that only reinforces the incentives for coming forward because then the military can say, look, in some of these cases where people saw strange lights in the sky, we figured out it was a foreign technology or we figured out it was nothing. You know, that's good. That is what the policy of reporting is designed to do, is to attribute these things. Um, so, yes, there's consensus there. And I think you saw that. You did see that consensus reflected in significant parts of the hearing this week. And then there's the second bucket, which is touched on by Grush actually more substantively than the other two witnesses in this case, and which seemed to get some degree of 
be treated with some degree of plausibility, maybe more than credibility, is this idea that there is some internal government apparatus surrounding these issues that is not totally evident to Congress. I might be engaging in activities that people might have different opinions about. So whether it's you know reverse engineering technology, whether it's working with defense contractors, whether it is you know you misusing appropriations in ways that Congress may not have intended, those are things alleged by him that do not hinge on the existence of alien technology or biologics or alien corpses or alien craft. The same things could apply if it's Chinese weather balloons that are being reverse engineered. But he seemed to be alleging certain types of government misconduct. And I thought at this, you saw members of this committee from both parties, at least treating them as plausible and asking targeted questions about about it. I thought uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had like a line of questioning that took it seriously and actually really drilled into this aspect of it, interestingly, without really getting into the alien stuff, which was the focus of some other members. To what extent is that seen as credible by government circles? Is this something people are seriously looking into? Is this the really genuinely revelatory part of Grisha's testimony as opposed to all the alien stuff? Are these sorts of programs and are is there an effort to really look into us that we can tell either by Congress or other parts of the government? I think that Grush's testimony is probably going to motivate more members of Congress to ask more pointed questions about the claims that he's making. One way I think often about you know this is that on one level, what Dave Grush is saying is, is absolutely true and irrefutable. The US government, the intelligence community, the military does retrieve crashed or fallen debris and tries to reverse engineer it and to study it. Uh, I don't know what percentage of those incidents are then positively attributed to a foreign government, but I know from talking to people in that space that sometimes they find an object or a piece of debris that looks highly unusual, that doesn't look like anything that the U.S. has you know, manufactured. And maybe it's that the, as one person, person explained this to me, look, maybe it has a kind of a composition that doesn't look like anything that we would create, but maybe China was experimenting with you know, carbon fibers in a way that you know, what we never thought was going to produce anything very useful, and they tried it. And maybe what we're looking at is just a unique piece of Chinese technology. That activity is going to be shrouded in secrecy because the sources and methods that the US government is using to detect, you know, where these things are coming down, how they're retrieving them, the knowledge that they may have about novel foreign adversary technology, you know, that understandably is going to be information that is both, you know, top secret and is compartmented and is is held on a fairly strictly on a need to on a strictly need to know basis. So yeah, there's a, there is a crash retrieval program with all kinds of secrecy surrounding it, and in part because I think we're trying to reverse we the U.S. is trying to reverse engineer that technology to be able to go out and sense it. You know, the balloon phenomena, if we want to call it that, from earlier in the year, one reason that the U.S. kept spotting all of these balloons, and it seemed like there were suddenly balloons everywhere, was they recalibrated the radar and were detecting things that ordinarily just get filtered out of the system because they're not threats. So while it seemed like we were actually, there was, we were being, you know, having more encounters with balloons, really it was just that we were spotting them more. And I mentioned that to say that the the radar signatures that these things will give off or the technological kind of the, the emissions that they might make or the way that we detect them, that's all protected by secrecy too. So it's a kind of long-winded way of saying that there's just a blanket of secrecy around this already. Now, within all of that, there are people like Dave Grush, and I've interviewed others who believe that some of these things are alien technology. If that is, if they have evidence of that, it really is incumbent upon them and upon members of Congress to really drill down on this and say, okay, give us the names of specific government programs. Give us things that we can then go to the government and, you know, serve them with subpoenas or with demands. Tell us the names of the contractors that are doing this. And and, and unfortunately, we just haven't seen a lot of that evidence put forward. Maybe, you know, Dave Grush will inspire more members, maybe like Congressman Ocasio-Cortez, to start saying, I want program names. I want to know the names of agencies that you allege are doing this. And, you know, by Dave Grush's account, you know, and others' account, they do have that information. The problem that they face, and this is a real one, I want to be very clear for someone like Dave Grush, is that the possibility of losing their security clearance, the possibility of workplace retaliation, that's all very real. And so Congress in recent years has passed whistleblower protection specifically for people like Dave Grush. 
so that they can come forward and give this information and be essentially immunized from any kind of um, um, retribution or even prosecution for revealing these things. And and I think that it's kind of now in Congress's court, like if you really take this seriously, if you believe there may be something to what Dave Grush is saying, then you and your staff need to start using the whistleblower protection laws to give these people cover so they can come and tell you, you know, what the, you know, the top secret code word is for the crash retrieval programs. Well, and that brings us to the third bucket of questions, which is the alien stuff, <laughs> which I think is the <laughs> idea that there, there's alien craft, there's biologics. You know, some people clearly take this seriously. Mr. Grush clearly does. Certainly members of this committee, subcommittee certainly do and did uh, or suggested they did. But is it safe to say that most of the congressional and government response treats this as, you know, maybe not saying we're going to categorically reject this as a possibility. That's fantastical, although I think a lot of people do take that view, but essentially saying that this isn't actually the main substance of the issue that that we can address at this point. These other you know, lower order, higher priority questions need to be addressed before we can even get to that. Does that does that sound fair to you? Yeah, I, I think that is fair. And one of the, the things I find regrettable about this hearing, and this is kind of to repeat something I said earlier, you know, Every time I've reported on this subject and talked about it for 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 years, one of the the good things in my mind about talking about sightings of strange objects in the sky and reporting on this as a journalist is that you can say, you know, no one is saying it's aliens, right? No one is saying, oh, we found evidence of aliens. And it kind of just like... It takes the tension out of the whole discussion. It makes it so we can have a more serious discussion because we're approaching this with a more open mind and saying, look, these things that we can see and there's evidence of them, there's physical data to back them up. Let's understand what they are. And it's occasioned a much more open-minded discussion, frankly, about the possibility of existence of extraterrestrial life, which is a wonderful question. And I think personally is something that you know we should dedicate a fraction of our time to uh, in this country to trying to understand. But when you start talking talking about the government is secretly hiding alien corpses from people, then you are saying it's aliens. And then without any real evidence, the discussion just leaps back into the most fanciful, fantastical explanations. And in my opinion, it just goes off the rails uh, to a significant degree. You know, there's a way that this discussion about whether or not the government has evidence of extraterrestrial technology could proceed in a more measured kind of way, the way the whole discussion around UAP sightings has. The whistleblower protection laws are in place. There's an ability for Congress to take testimony from people, to investigate, to find out whether or not there's actually misappropriation of funds going on, possibly in a crash retrieval program that has nothing to do with alien technology. And unfortunately, I think that the way that, you know, Dave Grush's statements have become public, uh, which is through the media and the way that they've been embraced, I think, quite uncritically by certain members of Congress who have already made up their minds on this question is both a setback to the discussion of UAPs and is not reflective of the consensus of where the Congress is. I think the, the people who were most vocal in this week's hearing members are outliers uh, on this question in Congress. I want to leave our listeners with one, one last slice of Shane Harris wisdom. You are somebody who has just thought about this stuff for a long time. Frankly, you have a bigger aperture view of it than any casual reader really can because you've talked to witnesses and primary sources and and wrestled with how to evaluate credibility through the lens of an experienced journalist, an experienced national security journalist who spends a lot of time dealing with coverage of topics that are substantially unknown for non-alien reasons. How do you think about the credibility of different aspects of the story? You know, how should we be approaching testimony like that from Mr. Grush or events like the committee's hearing when we hear about these claims that are brought forward, what is the lens you view them through and how should would you advise listeners think about it and process it, particularly in light of the fact that it seems like this issue is not going away and to some extent is at least in this hearing maybe taking on a little bit of a partisan or ideological valence in a way that might lead it to, to some more instrumental use that could lead to a lot of assumptions on either side about the underlying allegations and facts. 
I think first I would encourage people to set aside all of the partisan, you know, the, the political commentary. I mean, don't don't view members of Congress as messengers and vessels here because there's a lot of posturing going on and and you know, they kind of come in with their set of presumptions. So just kind of if, if possible, just kind of forget this hearing happened <laughs> um, and, and, and engage with what Dave Grush is saying in the following way and have the following context when you think about it. You know, this is a decorated, respected intelligence officer who was given access to extraordinary amounts of classified information. Everything in his record indicates that he respected those responsibilities that he had. He's a serious person, is what I mean to say. He is also not unique in that there are many people who have high-level security clearances, who've worked in government in sensitive positions, tell stories a lot like Dave Grush's, of things that they have heard, of things that they have encountered based on people they've talked to. And there is a kind of a whole... If within the, if you want to think of like the UFO meta narrative, there's a whole sub story in that of people who claim to know about this crash retrieval stuff. The way I think about it is that, you know, they are a minority of people who have been exposed or worked in the actual real crash retrieval activity, you know, that's been going on for decades. And they firmly believe that there is evidence that the government is hiding. I don't think these people are crazy. I don't think that they're making it up. My question is whether or not they are engaged in a giant game of telephone. And what I mean by that is that the more you talk to them, and I've kind of said this already, but like it's always I heard from somebody who heard it from somebody who was in a position to know. Or I talked to somebody who used to work with somebody whose father worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and he said, and it is always one or more steps removed. And it becomes really challenging to know whether or not people actually have evidence of these claims or what they're doing is telling ghost stories. Uh, and and I don't discount them because they don't have proof. I mean, I, as a journalist, I mean, I talk to all kinds of people who don't have proof of something. And, you know, my job as a journalist is to dig and to find the proof uh, or to find ways that the people can go find the proof. But rather, the, the, the quality and the character of this story is just like you just keep hearing the same kinds of things over and over again, and nobody ever has, ev has evidence of it. And I don't think that they're... I don't think they have malicious intent. <clears throat> you know, I don't think they're all off the rocker. I just... I really question whether or not people are essentially just repeating things that have echoed down through this community in the crash retrieval world for decades. And they've come to fervently believe it. I'll believe it when I see evidence of it. And I think that, you know, as it's the last point, it's very hard for me to believe that hundreds, if not thousands of people could have been involved in a program, a program of programs that is studying crashed alien technology for decades, and no one has ever talked about it. No one has ever leaked a document. I just don't think that's a secret that would stay secret. Well, that is the point on which we will have to leave this conversation. Shane Harris, thank you so much, as always, for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security that I host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howe and produced by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.